This week has been an interesting week. I don't know if any, any news watchers here follow news, newspapers, things. I, I, at times this week, had to turn everything off. I was so disgusted with what I was seeing as, as the whole debt ceiling and the whole government shutdown and, and hearing all of the posturing that was happening, I would listen. I'm like, that's not true. That's not true. And then the other side, that's not true. That's not, I'm like, this is ridiculous. And I just turned it off and went and did something. I didn't watch baseball anymore, but, um, (laughs) and, and as I was watching this, what a picture of some of the ways that we can be, be tempted, that we can be ensnared because what was so much of it about As as you see the posturing, what is that about? That's about self, isn't it? I'm setting myself up for the next election. I'm setting myself up to win, uh, to look powerful, to look important. And at some points, it's like, I've just, I've just had enough of this. And at times, it was about money. And, and so many times, unfortunately, it's about I want more money as a, as a, in my department so I can spend whatever I want and get whatever I want. And whereas that's on a government level, Aren't those two things some of the very things that every one of us struggle with at times? We can be tempted to elevate self and we can be tempted with greed or wanting more. And maybe not just money, but wanting more stuff and things. Because if I just have a little bit more, I might be happy. If, if I just had this, then my life would be complete. Then I could move forward. And, and we have two dangerous temptations there that aren't isolated to government, although they were on display for the world to see this week. But they occurred in the church, and they were occurring at the church of Ephesus, as you had elders who probably started out walking with God and then somehow were tempted and snared and strayed from the truth. And as we come to the end of 1 Timothy, Paul comes back to two key issues and issues of of trying to understand why these men walked away, why they became false teachers, why they began to divide the church, and at the same time be on guard ourselves to make sure we don't do the same thing. Last week as we talked about honoring elders and honoring preaching elders or pastors, We talked about several things. One was giving them a a fair wage, and the second was holding them accountable, and the third was choosing them well. And and this this whole discussion about elders and leaders in the church and to be cautious because people can abuse any position. And this week he comes back to that issue, and he comes back to specifically holding them accountable and explaining warning signs to watch for, and also honoring them and talking about money and talking about our own view of money and, and whether we are grasping for money or willing to let God use it. And so today is issues of self and issues of greed. So if we all just want to walk out the door right now, say, <laughs> so, oh, we don't want to talk about that today. As I studied, I'm like, man, this is, these are important things. These are things that step on my toes. If I'm really willing to open up my life, and say, how does God's word convict? How does God's word apply? Let's start with a word of prayer. Lord God, our Father, as we come to your word this morning, I pray that you would challenge us. Lord, that you would reveal this morning. Open our eyes to any areas of self-centeredness that we might be struggling with. Lord, to areas of discontent that are keeping us from walking with you, that are keeping us from serving you and allowing you complete access to our lives. Convict us with your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. We'll be be starting in verse 3 today and digging in. And and like I said, it's two parts. 3 through 5, we're going to deal with issues of self and self-centeredness. And in 6 through 10, we're going to deal with issues of contentment or greed, discontent, and issues of money. And these were the two major temptations and snares that were occurring in this church and occur in in any church, can occur. And as we read this, I encourage you this morning, we could read this and say, well, that was for them. That was for their elders. Or we could even read it today and say, oh, I hope so-and-so hears this. But Paul here is coming back to this at the end of his letter in a section on personal teaching, personal godliness. And so his challenge by coming back to it is not only to revisit the subject yet again on some of these subjects, but to challenge us and to say, how are you doing with that subject? 
How are you doing with these temptations? How am I doing with these temptations? And in fact, halfway through our text this morning, you'll see him switch from talking about elders to talking about you and I and what we should teach. So let's start with verse 3. And I'd like to read verses 3 through 5. We'll deal with that section, and then we'll deal with the second section. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness... He is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Wow, there's some strong strong words in there. Strong admonishment. So let's unpack it and, and rather than ignore it, See what God is trying to teach us. Point number one, the false teachers were motivated by a craving for self. The false teachers were motivated by a craving for self. Watch out. Watch out. Watch for your own lives. Watch not only so you can be aware when someone is straying from the truth, but so we can be aware when we ourselves are straying from the truth and heading towards self-centered reasons for anything we do. Self-centered roots for anything we do. And as he unpacks verses 3 through 5, he's talking about what motivates the false teachers. What are, what are things they're craving after? And you'll see the word craving throughout both parts of this passage. What are they craving after that keeps them from craving after God's purpose? That keeps them from craving after being entrusted with the gospel? And so we come to the, the unhealthy teachers that are harming the church. And we get to the roots in verse 3, letter A. They craved their own doctrine that focused on their own works. They craved their own doctrine that focused on their own works. In verse 3, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, then he'll go on to describe them a little bit more, But the first thing that we see happening is is they had come up with their own doctrine. They had come up with their own ideas, a different doctrine than what was being taught. And there is is prestige with coming up with your own doctrine, isn't there? When When you can come up with your own idea, it's like, look what I came up with. I am smarter than the people that have come before me for, now if we say it, 2,000 years since Christ and One of my professors always used to say, if you come up with a different way of interpreting that passage that you don't find in any other commentary, you're probably wrong. (laughs) Because the temptation, as a seminary student especially, I'm studying Greek, I'm studying Hebrew, I'm studying all these tools, I am going to find something different that no one else has ever found. What's the motivation behind that? Me. How can I be important? How can I make a difference? How can I make sure people listen to me? And and this is what's happening here. If anyone teaches a different doctrine, so they were straying from what the apostles were teaching. They were straying from the Word of God. And he describes that a little bit more and does not agree with, and, and agree meaning not just, yeah, okay, I agree, but loyally adhere to. So if he doesn't just come on board with what the apostles are teaching and the teaching of Jesus Christ and say, yes, this is what I believe, then he is self-centered and a false teacher. He does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ. The, the idea of sound words there, and this is a, a theme that we're going to see a little bit later in the same passage, is he's comparing healthy and unhealthy. And the word for sound also means sound of body. So healthy. So when someone was healthy, they would use this word to say they're sound. And so Paul here is using a, a little bit of, of an imagery here to say they don't agree with the healthy words of or about our Lord Jesus Christ. And he's bringing them back to the central point of what should be our theology. It's about Jesus. It's about what Jesus has done. And and, and the wording there, the the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, could be taken either way in the Greek of, is it the words that Jesus spoke, or is it the words about Jesus Christ? So it's of Jesus Christ in that way. And, And I think the answer is yes, actually, in this case. Both of those. 
because they already had some, some oral traditions of the Gospels, probably some preliminary writings of the Gospels. So they already had some of the teachings of Christ, but they were definitely teaching that. And Paul is saying, that's the center. When we stray from what God has done, what Christ has done, we are straying from good doctrine, from healthy doctrine. And we know in, in Ephesus, that's what they were doing. Their different doctrine was coming up with different ways to be godly. Well, if you don't do this, if you do this, man, then you, then you have spiritual wisdom. Wow. And so they were adding to the gospel, and we, we talked about this, that in essence they were taking away from the gospel because they changed the gospel. And they were, they were reducing the power of Jesus Christ. And the center of the, the center of our teaching should always be the work of Christ, that we are in need of Him. Because of our sin, we are in rebellion to God, and we deserve to die. And because Jesus came as God, is God, and died on the cross in our place for our sins, and rose again the third day, and ascended into heaven to come and, and receive us to Himself later, unless that's the center of our teaching, we are opening ourselves to fall apart. And that's what was happening here. Is it wasn't about Jesus anymore. It was about their different doctrine. It was about all kinds of other things. And that doesn't mean we can't teach a story that doesn't have Jesus in it. Because we know the whole Old Testament is looking forward to the Redeemer, to the Messiah. The whole New Testament is the result of His work and His sanctifying work in the church and adopting us into His kingdom. But they were unhealthy. They were sick, as we're going to see, as used a little bit later, and refusing to follow the sound words of Jesus Christ and teaching that accords with godliness, or godly teaching, referring to the apostles' teaching. And it also brings up one of the tests of teaching. Does this teaching promote unity? Does it promote godliness? Does it promote community? Does it promote following God's ministry and His purpose? Or does it take us down other paths? And so they were craving their own doctrine that focused on their own works. The answer is we need to not crave our own doctrine, not crave our own ability, but crave God's Word. Crave God's Word. How do you protect yourself from false teaching? Be in the Word. Read this. Read this every day. Read it and check anything I say, anything Pastor Andrew says, anything that any of your teachers say today. Check it out. Don't take my word for it. Take God's word for it. My prayer is that I'm always pointing you back to God's word. And pointing you back to this being the source of truth, not anything that I say. That's how we keep a doctrine that's focused on God's word, is by being in God's word. That's how we keep from being deceived. So crave God's Word. Then we go to verse 4, and Paul continues to describe them. They not only craved their own doctrine, focused on their own works, but they craved admiration because of their knowledge. They craved admiration because of their knowledge. Paul starts to deal with their character here, that it's a self-centered character. Look at verse 4. He is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. It's the first phrase there. He is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. And puffed up was used about blowing smoke or being filled with smoke. Being filled with hot air might be a phrase that we would, would use for that. And the conceit is, it's about me. And so he would talk about himself or it would all be about his knowledge. But, but Paul says, he actually understands nothing. He understands nothing. One translation translates this phrase, he's a conceited idiot. Another translation translates it, he's a pompous ignoramus. And they're not being cruel, the words there are actually that, that, that strong. Because when we decide that we need to be heard, and somehow we need to answer everything, and we have the answers for everything, we are puffing ourselves up and pointing to ourselves and ignoring God Almighty. Drawing attention away from God. And it's a desire to look smart. 
to boost self, to look good in front of others. Paul's revisiting what he said in, in 1 Timothy 1.7. If you just flip back a couple pages. 1 Timothy 1.7 Desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. And, and again, he's talked about false teachers over and over and over again because he's trying to protect the church, God's church. And he says these people desire to be teachers of the law. They don't understand though and they confidently assert the truth or what they think is the truth. Do you know people like that? That always have an answer and are confident, almost boisterous in their answer? And that usually is a sign that they're covering that they don't actually know. But they think they know. What do we do to try to be perceived as knowledgeable or as important. And part of the answer here, part of the problem is they're putting their self first. Part of the answer is to put others first. To learn to listen to others. To learn that I might not always be right and that I need to hear others. To not be filled with smoke and puffed up. There are times we get into modes where we, f- we always feel like we have the answer to the question. Maybe it's a Sunday school class. Maybe it's a board meeting. And we always have to have our opinion be heard. That is from self-centeredness. And that's what's happening here. That was the snare that these false teachers were coming into. They were puffed up with conceit, I know best, and in reality knew nothing and were ignorant. Instead of craving admiration, instead of craving being looked at as knowledgeable, we need to crave putting others first and learning. Crave putting others first and learning. If I crave learning, what does that imply? That I don't know everything. That I need to learn. And so when, when people come into conversations even the language we use affects this. When we come in and say, this is the way it should be, or this is, this is the truth. And, and, and now keep in mind, I'm not talking about the core of our doctrine. I'm not talking about the truth of Jesus Christ. And, and because Paul is defending that. But when we come to all these superfluous issues, we say, this is the way it is, or this is what needs to happen. Our language is language of self-centeredness. I know best. But if we come to it and say, This is what I think. Or this is my opinion. I'd like to hear your opinion. Different language, drastically different results. One is self-centered. One is seeking to be other-centered, which ultimately is God-centered. Just simple change in language. We can be so adamant about our opinions, and I'm fine with holding strong opinions, but how do we communicate them when they're beyond the core essential beliefs? makes or breaks community, as we're going to see. Crave putting others first and crave learning. Know that you don't know everything. I don't know everything. C. They crave stirring up controversy and arguments. And you see a progression here. When we crave admiration because of knowledge, always have to be right, we start to stir up controversy and arguments. That's what the false teachers were doing. Continuing in verse 4. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. And so he he challenges them to be on guard both in the, the teachers and in themselves by things that we do that promote arguments that promote controversy. Again, we're not talking about the essentials of the truth. We hold those dearly. I will fight for those to my death. But we're talking about other ancillary issues in the church and and things that that really we don't have to cause an argument about. But the when we're committed to self, we crave starting a fight. Why would they crave starting a fight? Because you can win. Do we go around starting fights that we know we're going to lose? Well, I hope not. I mean, that's sort of silly, stupid. 
But no, they're going around starting fights that they think they have an answer for because it becomes a platform that people can see them and and admire them and look up to them. It's all about them. And it's unhealthy. He has an unhealthy craving or a sick craving for controversy would be another way of saying that. And it's direct contrast with verse 3, the healthy teaching about Jesus from the apostles and the sick way we try to create arguments and controversy. These people would take like one word and, and try to analyze one word and, and come up with a whole different doctrine and, and cause fights over silly little things. And in reality, they're saying, I want to be heard. My thoughts are right. I want to win. And this point, I, I, I pray we take very seriously. Because as... as as I watch the church at large in America and as I watch some of the struggles we've had at Village, oftentimes it comes back to this point with the root of self-centeredness. I'm going to fight for this. I'm going to argue this. And it's how we talk to each other. It's how we treat each other. And we have to ask the question, is this a core issue? Can I word this to where it's my opinion rather than if you disagree with me, you are evil? And Paul stops here and Paul says, here's five things that can do to your church if you don't follow this. And you see that as you read on. It leads to envy, possibly at what others have or the success of others. It then leads to dissension. Because if I'm envious of other people and I want what they have and somehow they, they're getting more attention than I am, then dissension is next and attacking a despising of others. Envy and dissension, do those affect community? They destroy community. They destroy community. Slander. Because now we start putting down others to exalt self. Whenever we put someone down, it's always to exalt ourselves. And it destroys community because now I'm starting to talk about other people. And then I start to assume motivations and assume intentions that aren't there, which is number four. Evil suspicions. I start thinking the worst of others. How many times have you caught yourself assuming what people are feeling and their motivations and getting angry about them for something they never said? And maybe we don't catch ourselves because the the, the sin of self-centeredness, the sin that the teachers were in is a sin that we usually can't see. We're usually blind to it. He's going to talk about that in verse 5. Evil suspicions, thinking the worst of others. Because again, if I can challenge someone's motivations, which no one can see, then I can win. And finally, constant friction. That's the end result. It affects community between leaders, between the congregation, between different groups, different ideas. What does that do to being entrusted with the gospel? It destroys it. If you have a football team that's out on the field, some of you watch football, um, and the, the offense goes out there, and the whole way to the huddle, they're pushing each other and, and angry at each other and shoving each other. They, they can't even listen to the play, and they get to the line. What's going to happen? Chaos. Chaos. How, how successful will that play be? It'll be a disaster. If we think of the military, if, if our troops are out there and they're on a mission and they're fighting with each other and sometimes shooting over the head of somebody just to teach them a lesson, how are they going to do engaging the enemy? They're going to fail. They're going to die. And so in the church, if we're entrusted with the Gospel, if His purpose is our purpose, how can we be about His purpose if we're fighting each other? if we're trying to to have this hierarchy over each other and superiority over each other, if there's envy, if there's dissension, that's why Satan was attacking the church at Ephesus this way. We know from our our study in Revelation that they were a church that that often was legalistically trying to do the right thing, but they had lost their love for God. And Paul's warning rings true today. 
that we need to be on guard for anything that would divide. For anything that would be divide. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says, wouldn't it be better to be wronged than to cause friction in the church? Think about that. In a culture where we will stand for our rights no matter what, nobody ever wronged me, are you willing to be wronged in the church for the sake of the gospel? Doesn't mean we don't address things. Doesn't mean we don't address sin. Paul, Paul is giving a balance here. But he's talking about a culture in which we do that. He goes on in verse 5. Constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. And what he's describing by depraved in mind is that they're morally blinded. Their, their mind has, has been gone down this path so much that they can't even see the unhealthy path that they're on. So we need others to correct. We need others to help us. We need to be in God's Word. So the answer is to realize my opinions are quite possibly not right. We need to crave community rather than speaking our mind. Crave community rather than speaking our mind. Now again, there's a time and a place for it and a method for it. But until we have that down, we need to probably be quiet. It's a challenge. Because what's most important? His purpose, being entrusted with the gospel. Last part of verse 5, one sentence that leads into the second half. They craved money and gain. They craved money and gain. In verse 5, it ends with, who are depraved in mind and deprived of truth, imagining that godliness is a means of great gain. Imagining that godliness is a means of great gain. And people were using a position of teaching, a position in the church, a position of authority to make a lot of money. Especially traveling teachers, they would go to a place and, and they would just say, you need to pay me and I'm going to keep teaching. And they would teach all kinds of things people wanted to hear just to get their money. And they would say, it was such a problem that finally, in the, in the church's early teaching, they said, only let someone come for three days. So they put a time limit as a precaution, as a protection. And so they were using their position to, to be wealthy. Again, it's about me. It's about what I want. That's the, the temptation. That's the snare. How can I benefit? And maybe it's money, maybe it's influence, maybe it's power, significance. And, and, and the church still struggles with this. When we see pastors that are on TV or preachers that are on TV that have these millions and millions of dollar mansions and, and every, the extravagant lifestyles, it turns our stomach a little bit. Because that's not, that's not why we do ministry. That's not what it's about to be a pastor. The significance, the attention you get isn't why you're Sunday school teachers. It's not why you lead ministries. It's about being entrusted with the gospel again and sharing Christ with others and helping others be discipled and to grow. And really, is there any greater reward? We seek a lesser reward when we seek earthly gain from these things. Crave contently serving God. Crave contently serving God. So verses 3-5, through five, the first half, Paul is dealing with false teachers and exposing how self is the root of their cravings. And it's the root of what has taken them down this path. Same thing that can take us away from God's purpose and God's path. And so now in the second half, he deals with that last phrase and, and he expands it on, on wanting gain and, and contentment. And he says, a craving for money and possessions is a craving to ruin your walk and life. Point number two. A craving for money and possessions is a craving to ruin your walk and life. Be content with what God has given. Be content with what God has given. 
start with verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. And Paul's using a play on words here. It's, it's sort of fun because he says, okay, they were, they were using godliness for gain. And, and he comes and says, well, well, actually, there's some truth to that. There's some truth to that. Godliness does bring gain. But he has a couple of qualifiers in verse 6 there. Did you catch them? What kind of gain is he talking about? In fact, we'll know that from the rest of the section. He's not talking financial gain here. He's talking spiritual gain. He's talking that verse 7 helps us understand that. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. It's not about what we gain here. It's about what we gain there. So so in that sense, yeah, there is great gain. There's great spiritual gain. It's godliness. But what's, what's paired with it is contentment. Contentment. How do we be content in our circumstances? Anyone here been through some difficult circumstances this year? A few of you. I would bet every one of us. There are circumstances that are hard. There are circumstances that are difficult. We may be in circumstances, I call them if-only circumstances. If only this would happen. If only I had this. Do you catch yourself doing that sometimes? And we get into a cycle of waiting. If only this happens, or when this happens, I'll do this. I can remember doing that with ministry, and we had this whole plan. Well, when this happens, then I'll go into ministry. When when the business gets to this point, then I'll do this. Because then my needs are met, and I have the lifestyle I want. And God just smacked us aside the head and said, No, you'll go into ministry now. Because it's not about if only, it's about who God is and what God wants us to do. And so when we talk about contentment, the, the word contentment means that we're independent of external circumstances, but dependent only of God. We're independent of external circumstances. Nothing around you affects whether you're content or not. But we're dependent on God. And so contentment is never based on if only the situation changed. Contentment depends on whether God has changed or whether God is trustworthy. And since He never changes and He's always trustworthy and He's always faithful, where does that leave us with contentment? It should always be part of our life. And so we have four different things that Paul teaches in this passage, reminders about contentment. The first is to see every circumstance as a valuable opportunity to rely on God. See every circumstance as a valuable opportunity to rely on God. Verse 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Not just a little gain, it's great gain, it's valuable. And the idea of contentment, like we said, is to rely on God. And so we can see circumstances as trouble. We can get upset about circumstances. We can get angry about circumstances, which leaves us bitter and frustrated. Or when difficult things come, we can say, okay, this is a chance to show how great God is. This is a chance for me to rely on God. I don't know how it's going to work out, but I'm going to sit and watch what God does. We're amazed at His faithfulness. Godliness plus contentment equals great gain. We saw in in chapter 4, verse 8, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Can we be independent of circumstances and dependent on God? Flip over to Philippians chapter 4. Let's compare what Paul said to the church at Philippi. Philippians chapter 4, verse 11. Philippians 4, verse 11. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Same idea. I can be satisfied with what God has given me, satisfied with what He's doing, no matter the external circumstances. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. 
And that secret is verse 13, one of the more misused verses, but it's in the context of, of contentment. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. The context is contentment. It's the secret of how to be content, no matter the circumstances, to rely on God. Because I can handle anything because He strengthens me. And the only way that we learn how to do that is to go through difficulties. Some of you this morning are sitting here going, man, I'm going through stuff this week, right now. And that's how God will strengthen you. That's how God will teach you to rely on Him, to teach you His greatness, to remind you you can trust Him. And we we do ask the question sometimes, well, what would make me happy? The if-onlys I mentioned the wrong question. Because if I can't be happy, if I can't be content in the situation I'm in, then the issue isn't what situation needs to be changed. It's what my trust in God, my belief in God needs to change. So Paul says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. And he's dealing with the financial aspect, the the leaders that are abusing finances, But he also is switching here to talking to the church. And especially when he had just talked to the church about supporting your pastor, supporting your ministry, he's dealing with some of the things that keep us from supporting our our ministry, keep us from supporting the church. And it comes back to contentment and whether or not we see our finances as something we need to be happy or as something to be used for God. And so B, we get to verse 7, constantly remind yourself, if we're to be content, we need to see every circumstance as a valuable opportunity to rely on God, and we need to constantly remind ourselves what lasts and what doesn't. What lasts and what doesn't. Verse 7 there says, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. Makes sense, right? We all know this. We don't don't see a U-Haul behind a hearse very often. We, we can't take anything out of the world. And, and Paul here is probably referring to Job in Job chapter 121 where he says, Naked I came from my mother's room and naked I shall return. And the idea is that this is temporary. The car you have, temporary. The salary you have, temporary. The house you have, temporary. And some of our houses are falling apart more than others and you feel like you have to fix things every day. It's a reminder that it's temporary. And Paul is using this argument for contentment and against greed to say it is stupid to try to get as much as you have here because it doesn't last. It's temporary. It's like trying to collect steam from your stove in a bottle and hoping that somehow helps you. It goes away. One minister was asked at a funeral of a wealthy lady, how much did she leave? His answer, everything. Everything. And we know this, don't we? Then why do we keep putting such an important on stuff? The question Paul is asking is where are your treasures, on earth or in heaven? Because wealth here doesn't last. Make eternal investments. So when we're thinking about contentment, We need to think about what lasts and what doesn't last. Are we upset over something that is temporary? We get to verse 8. Really important concept in being content. Differentiate between needs and wants correctly. We we try to differentiate them, and we, we call a lot of things needs that are really wants. Differentiate between needs and wants and be content. And be content. Verse 8 says, But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. And, and Paul is talking about if we have the essentials, if we have food, if we have something to eat, clothing, which, which means a covering and also was used for shelter. So he's talking about shelter and food. If we have those, we can be content. We don't need anything else. When we make something essential that isn't essential, we become discontent. That makes sense? 
When we make something essential that isn't essential, discontentment is the result. Because now we're frustrated and, and it, it's of elevated importance to us because we think we need it. We can think we need the new car. We can think we need the vacation. We can think we need the pet, the larger house, certain kinds of food. We can think we need the cell phone. We can think we need the relationship. Those are wants. Those are not essentials. Are those wrong? No. Are they nice to have? Absolutely. I love my family. But Paul here is saying, if you have food and clothing, with those you can be content. Remember Jesus' teaching of the lilies of the field. Consider the lilies of the field. They neither sow nor reap, yet God arrays them in glory. He arrays them in splendor. He clothes them. He takes care of their needs. And then Jesus says, how much more? If God cares about a flower that doesn't last into eternity, how much more does He care about you? If we're to be content, we've got to learn to distinguish between needs and wants. He says, but if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. I love the wording there because it's, 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 it has a forcefulness. You will be content. It's me going on vacation with my kids and saying, you will have fun. <laughs> this is the fun car. Paul's saying that with contentment. And what does that imply? That there's a choice to be made. There's a willing to be content. You choose whether or not you're content or not. I choose. And Paul says, differentiate between needs and wants and be content. Do we trust God for those needs? There was a simple living Quaker, I love this story, who was watching his neighbor move in with all the furnishings and expensive toys that all the successful people collect. And the Quaker finally went over to his neighbor and said, "Um, Neighbor, if ever thou dost need anything, come to see me, and I will tell thee how to get along without it. (laughs) Because they're not really needs. Are we discontent in life? Are we frustrated with where God has us in life? Because if we're frustrated and discontent with where God has us, we can't. We, we struggle to be about His ministry. We struggle to do things for Him. Because we're just trying to get what we need and get what we want. Be content. Serve God. Finally, in verses 9 and 10, Paul brings them back to the cost of greed, the cost of craving money. Recognize the huge cost in craving money both physically and spiritually. Recognize the huge cost in craving money, both physically and spiritually. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. Pains. Lots in those two verses, but just let's just pull out a couple things. First thing is he's talking about a desire to be rich or, or a, a need and a will to be rich. It's people that are committed to finding a way to, to gather more stuff. He's not condemning money here. In fact, in verse 10, one of the most misquoted verses, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. How is that sometimes quoted? Money is the root of all kinds of... No, no, that's not what it says. The love of money. It's seeking after it. It's pursuing it. The churches met in some of the wealthiest people's houses in the town because they had enough room for them. The issue isn't whether God has blessed you or not with finances, which are always to be used for Him in His kingdom. The issue is, is that our goal? Is that our thrust? Is that our desire? And so he says, those who desire to be rich fall into, and he gives three things, temptation, a coveting, a lure. When we're tempted something, we're, we're, we're seeking after it. So there's a temptation with it. 
The next word he uses is a snare, and we see a spiral that's going down. A snare, the word is used of, of one of these rope snares that you would catch an animal with. You know, you've seen them in the movies where it's tied to a tree that's bent over, and you have the snare on the ground, it catches the animal. What does it do with the animal? It leaves them dangling in the air by their feet. Ah! You know, it, and that's the picture of someone that is seeking money. You, you get into a snare and you're flailing about in midair and can't do anything to get out of it. You're helpless. What a, what a picture. And then he says, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction or drown them is the idea. And so we see that this desire of craving money is so damaging. In verse 10, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Like we said, it's not condemning money. It's also saying that not all evil is from money. It's all kinds of evil is how it's translated. Think of, think of what greed does to us. Think of all the sins that come out of greed or that greed is part of. Selfishness. Cheating. Fraud. Perjury. Robbery. Envy. Quarreling, hatred, sometimes to violence and even murder. Greed lies behind marriages of convenience at times, perversions of justice, pornography sales, blackmail, exploitation of the weak, the neglect of good causes because I can't let go of my money, and the betrayal of friends. Where are we at? And we, this is a question we need to every one of us ask ourselves. How important is the acquisition of, of stuff and money in my life? You know, one of the ways we can ask our, look at that is, okay, why do I work? Why do I work? Am I in the job I have so I can amass wealth? So I can earn a, a ton of money and have what I want? Or that same job and working that same salary, we could have a totally different purpose Am I doing this to honor God and honor my family by supporting them and use this in any way for ministry that I can? One is the love of the acquisition of money. The other is the love of God and His purpose. We can, we can, we can use this, we can use a love of money to keep from helping people. Because if I have to help somebody, what does that do to my money? I have to spend money. I might have less money. I may not be as secure. See, money represents things to us. It can represent power. It can represent authority. It can represent self-centeredness and getting what I want. And so the love of money is seeking after self. And it never satisfies. Ecclesiastes 5.10 says, He who loves money will never be satisfied with money nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. Rockefeller, near his death, was asked, how much money will you be happy with? And his answer, just a little more. Just a little more. The richest man on earth at that point in time. We see examples in Scripture with Achan in the Old Testament taking from, from Jericho, and we see it affecting all of Israel after that. We see Ananias and Sapphira in the New Testament wanting to look benevolent but keeping money to themselves because they loved money. And God striking them dead for that. And we see the consequences in verse 10. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith. It's not possible to pursue God and money at the same time. It keeps them from following God's instructions keeps them from being true to the faith. This is probably an issue that was keeping them from, from giving to the church and honoring their pastors, which we talked about in that way, which we talked about last week. Because Paul is saying, yes, people might abuse it. And you need to be on guard for elders that abuse it. But you, we ourselves need to not be hoarders of money. And then it says, they pierced themselves with many pangs. And again, Paul uses very vivid imagery here. And the idea is of, of a body being impaled on spikes. 
Not a pleasant picture. But a body being impaled on spikes is the picture that Paul gives if we make money, the acquisition of money, our goal. Crave God's glory, not wealth. How do we learn to be content and not love money? Be generous. Be generous with people. Be faithful in giving to the church and your tithing because that shows that you trust God and that you're, you're not just trusting money as the source of your security. Think about why you spend every dollar you spend because every dollar we spend is a spiritual decision. Crave God's glory, not wealth. And so Paul here in this passage challenges us with two issues. Are we self-centered? Have we given in to self? Or, and do we have issues with greed? Or are we content and able to use our resources for the kingdom of God? Important issues that the church at Ephesus was facing. But boy, it rings true today. Let's close in prayer. Lord God, our Father, I pray that you would help us to be about your purpose. To let nothing distract us from discipleship, from sharing the gospel, from training, training up men and women to follow you. Lord, this week, help us to evaluate the decisions we make the ways we spend our money and evaluate whether this is in something, an investment in something that lasts or is temporary. And Lord, I pray that we would be about the permanent. That we would be content knowing that you provide. Knowing that you have every circumstance under your control. And that our focus would be on you in every situation. Lord, I pray this week that you would stamp out any elements of self-centeredness and of discontent in our lives. No matter how hard it is, stamp those out and challenge us with those, God. In Jesus' name, amen.